The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. Today's podcast was recorded live Thursday, May 25th in Sacramento at Roadmap 2035, Cars, Carbon, and Climate Change, How Do We Meet California's Zero Emissions Goals? Today, we present Panel 1, The Technology, How We Get There. Our panelists today are Jacqueline Birdsall of Toyota, Steve Douglas of the Alliance for Automotive Innovation, Quentin G. of the California Energy Commission, and Orville Thomas of CalSTART. Our moderator is Alejandro Lazo of CalMatters. We'll go ahead and get started in just one moment, but first, let's thank our sponsors for the event. Support for Capital Weekly's Roadmap 2035 conference was provided by the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations, the Western States Petroleum Association, KP Public Affairs, Perry Communications, Capital Advocacy, Lucas Public Affairs, the Weideman Group, and the California Professional Firefighters. Thank you very much, Tim. So, um... Where is California's electric revolution uh, most visible? The answer to that uh, question took uh, CalMatters, which was my organization, to one of the wealthiest towns in the country. That's Atherton, nestled in the heart of Silicon Valley. It was there where home prices routinely topped $7 million. That electric car ownership is highest in this state, about one out of every seven cars. So I open up our panel today with Atherton, not to single any particular place out, but just as a starting point. In order for California to reach its goal of no new gasoline-powered car sales by 2035, the state essentially has to become Atherton and more. In other words, zero emission vehicles have to go from being a symbol of status to ubiquitous, from Silicon Valley to Tulare County, and a lot more than that has to happen. So this morning, we're going to talk about zero emission vehicles and clean energy and the demands on automakers and others to meet state and other national mandates. California is about to undergo a transformation like none other. In less than four years, more than a third of all new cars purchased in California must be zero emissions. And beginning with 2035 models, no new gasoline-powered cars will be sold in the nation's most populous state. So... We will discuss the resource challenges we are facing and supply chain concerns, batteries. We'll delve into whether California's energy grid can handle a 15-fold increase in electric cars. We'll discuss who buys electric or other zero-emission cars in California and what needs to happen before all sales become zero emissions. Um, We'll also discuss some of California's other regulations, and we'll leave some time, of course, for questions, as Tim mentioned. Um, so this is a pretty high, a complex, high-stakes issue, lots of nuances, lots of nuances. And so that's why I'm very pleased that joining me on stage are folks who bring very high-level expertise and boots-on-the-ground attention to California's clean energy future. I'm really looking to uh, forward to hearing all of their perspectives. Um, and I'm going to start out. Oh, no. Since I can see uh, the name the name tags, let's go. Let's start from uh, my left. Uh, we have Quinton. Quinton G is a supervisor with the California Energy Commission, where he forecasts transportation energy demand at the state's primary energy policy and planning agency. Quentin, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, um, We have Jacqueline Birdzall, Senior Engineering Manager of the Fuel Integration Group at Toyota Motor North America Research and Development. Jacqueline has more than 20 years of experience in hydrogen, having held several roles in the automotive industry. Thanks very much, Jacqueline. And uh, next to Jacqueline, we have Orville Thomas, the state Policy Director for CalStart, overseeing budget and legislative advocacy for that nonprofit, which is dedicated to building a high-tech, clean transportation industry. Thank you very much, Orville. 
And finally, Steve Douglas, a vice president with the Alliance of Automobile Manufacturers. He works extensively on environmental regulations with both the Cal California, Air California Air Resources Board and the US EPA, including, of course, zero emission vehicles. So with those introductions, love to start with uh, you, Quentin. Uh, could you just lay out what the market for zero emission vehicles in California looks like today? What's demand look like? Um, is it realistically in line with uh, California's mandates? Yeah, thanks, Alejandro. Um, yeah, uh, what what we do at the the CEC, the California Energy Commission, the CEC, uh, we we get uh, regular data from uh, the Department of Motor Vehicles and conduct analysis with that, breaking down the different fuel types. And what we've seen since 2020 or so, we've seen a remarkable uptick in new vehicle sales uh, that are zero emission. Uh, so if you look at 2020 or so, we were at about 8% zero emission vehicles. And then 2021, about 12% of all the new vehicles sold were zero emission. And then in 2022, we hit about um, 18%. And then in the first quarter of 2023, we've got about 21% of all the new vehicles sold were zero emission. So we're seeing a pretty stable uptick. And if you were to just follow that trajectory quarter by quarter up to the point where, you know, you mentioned that CARB uh, regulation, Advanced in Cars 2 coming in. Uh, if you just follow the, the most recent trend that, that's going on in the last uh, 12, 12 or so quarters, uh, we would supersede that uh, that requirement, I think it'd be a little bit above above that. We are seeing a lot more interest as well, um, and, and an increasing interest in uh, uh, battery electric vehicles as opposed to the plug-in hybrids. There still is pretty strong demand for plug-in hybrids, but battery electric vehicles are uh, are really seeing a remarkable growth, much more than than I think a lot of people thought. A lot of people thought that there would be a preference for plug-in hybrids because people have things like range anxiety, those sorts of things. But um, we're seeing that that actually battery electric, the full full on electric, no no engine at all, are, are really the things that that consumers are gravitating towards, and uh, it's it's been pretty surprising. And uh, some of the analysts that we follow have been saying things like, you know, uh, uh, by the time you hit uh, you know 10, 15 percent penetration of new vehicles sold, that's when consumers begin to really start to have a different attitude and different take on on you know. What are these things? And seeing them all over the road, my neighbor has one, you know, and, and I ask him questions. Oh, you can plug it straight in a wall socket. I didn't know that. It's, it's a little bit slower. They, they sort of get, get all these questions sort of answered more and more. And it becomes, I think, a much more sort of salient or, or sort of top of the mind sort of thing when people are beginning to think about purchasing a new car. So, Steve, um, so, Steve, uh, so as we just heard from Quentin, uh, Sounds like we've got a new age of uh, car manufacturing that's uh, arrived uh, starting since 2020, uh, or at least uh, significantly since 2020. Uh, can we say that it's been spurred by uh, California's mandate? Uh, is, is that why we're here today? Uh, yeah, that, that's a great question. Thanks for, for inviting me. I, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, I've been working on this for 25 years um, uh, on the California zero emission vehicle regulations. And, and over the and you, of course, I started in 2010 with kind of mass market electric vehicles coming out. Um, and, and that's certainly a, a big part of it. I think automakers are responding not just to California, but this is a global movement. Um, so it's it's around the world. You know, the EU has regulations. California has regulations. EPA has proposed new regulations. China has regulations. Everybody has regulations. And so the question of whether or not we're transitioning is that's not the question. We are. We will. Um, the, the The question is how quickly. And the questions around the technologies are, can people afford them? Can people fuel them? And can we get the critical minerals needed to power those? So that's kind of where we stand today. I agree with Quentin. The the, the market in California is has been on a steady trajectory from, you know, 20-ish 20, 20 percent last year and, and this year. I, I will point out on that first question that, you know, over the last couple of years, the average electric vehicle price has been about $60,000, $65,000, which 
suggests that the people buying these are affluent single-family homeowners. And if we're going to reach the levels that are legally required by California, um, which are 50% in just four years, so every gas car will have an electric car in just four years, if we're going to reach those levels and 70% by the end of the decade, we have to expand beyond the the affluent single-family homeowners. We have to reach the mass market. We have to reach um, the the multifamily housing, apartments, condos, people who park on the streets. So we have a, a lot of work to do. Um, as far as the automakers go, we, we know how to build electric vehicles. Every car company does. Um, we have already invested $110 billion. And I think by 2030, that grows to... Uh, uh, $1.2 trillion in electrification. So it's happening, but but it's there's a lot of factors outside of the vehicle that have to take place if we're going to be successful, if we're going to be inclusive in this transition. Jacqueline, um, I'd love to hear from you, uh, your perspective. Um, you know, uh, just uh, on the broader question of uh, California's project here with these mandates, uh, from from your point of view, have California's mandates helped spur innovation of, of clean car technologies? Have they gotten in the way in any in any way? That's an excellent question. Um, and thank you for uh, for having me for being here. Um, it's our pleasure. Yeah, glad to see everyone in the room, too. Uh, so for Toyota, we actually began development of our hybrid technology and fuel cell technology back in the 90s. We saw uh, that there was going to be a need to move away from gasoline. And though we weren't talking about climate change yet, we did still recognize the negative impacts that we were having on the environment. So then in 2015, we launched our Environmental Challenge 2050, which was our own goal to decarbonize our vehicle fleet and how we manufacture the vehicles reduce our water content, our water usage, increase recyclability, all these overall goals that um, would be required for Toyota globally for us to decarbonize uh, across our entire industry. Um, so we kind of already have our own internal mandate, right, <laughs> that we're trying to meet. Um, and when we talk about decarbonizing the vehicle fleet itself, what that means is electrification. And for us, that's a combination of hybrid electric, plug-in hybrid electric, battery electric, and fuel cell electric. And in offering all these different powertrain types, the customer can choose the vehicle that is best for their lifestyle. What we have seen in California is that there is a lot of support. There's smart policies. Um, there's funding for both hydrogen fueling infrastructure and for battery chargers, uh, more so in the state than um, in any other state. Uh, California has done a great job at uh, making hydrogen a, a motor fuel and having the weights and measures department all set up to actually put their stamp of approval on hydrogen dispensers. All this work that a lot of people don't really think of, that, but is really essential to how we make this infrastructure available for the customers to be able to purchase the vehicles. As, as Steve said so eloquently, you know, we know how to build the cars and we build phenomenal cars that people love to drive, but we need the infrastructure. And what California has done so well is made that infrastructure available. Great. Um, Orville, I'd love to get your your thoughts in here. Um, you know, uh, can you uh, outline some of the challenges that the automobile industry is facing? Um, uh, uh, and, and what are you advocating for regulators here in California going forward? Well, uh, challenges, I think this whole room, we could probably spend a day on that one. <laughs> Um, so challenges, and I'm glad I saw Laura come in because we'll definitely have a lot of solutions, hopefully coming from your panel. Um, the technology I would like to say is, is here. And I think we could all agree that we have vehicles that kind of fit in the needs of almost the entire market, whether it's a light duty passenger or medium and heavy duty. Uh, we're getting to the class eight, like day cab and sleeper cab tractor trailers, but the challenges really are centered on infrastructure. Do we have places where fuel cell electric vehicles can refuel? Do we have places where battery electric vehicles can recharge? Are they working? Are they on like, are, is the uptime there? And so I think where we come from is how do we make, you know, I think when we talk about technology, it's really looked at as vehicle technology, but what about refueling technology? How do we fix that gap? 
whether it's mobile power units, whether it is trailers that have hydrogen refueling that could be connected to agricultural sources of methane or carbon capture. And instead of sequestration, it has electrolysis that's available. Um, so I think what we are looking at and where the regulations are pushing is how do we solve for that last bit of energy? And when we did advanced clean fleets, as many of you know, their resources board passed the advanced clean fleets regulation. Uh, if you looked at the public comments, it was interesting because there was a lot of support for moving in that direction, but the exemptions are really all based around delays in infrastructure. And so California has these great goals that are being exported to other states. I think we have nine states that have adopted advanced clean truck, a uh, little less that have adopted advanced clean car too. But the question I hear from all those states is, well, what are you doing for infrastructure and how do we solve that problem? Yeah, let's jump uh, right into infrastructure and the electrical grid. Um, Quentin, you know, as California rapidly boosts sales of electric cars and trucks over the next decade, uh, you know, this is a critical question. Will there be enough electricity in the state to uh, power them? Yeah, so there, there's a couple uh, considerations on that front. And that's what, what we really do at the Energy Commission is, is try to get a firm grasp on this. Um, uh, on the one hand, there's the energy that is necessary. So are there enough power plants to provide the, the electricity needed to power the vehicles? And then the other challenge, the other question that we have to face is, is there the right kind of grid infrastructure, the ability to transmit the electricity over long distances, or if it's in a local area or once it gets to the local area, uh, is the distribution infrastructure uh, capable of supplying that? Um, and that's basically one of the, the key things that we do at the, the Energy Commission is, is do that evaluation and present, do the forecasting work and provide that to the Public Utilities Commission and to the um, to the utilities, and they use that for planning. And so what we already know, what we've put in place as of 2021, even before that, we have we have had uh, zero emission uh, vehicle forecasting, of course. But in 2021 and 2022, we instituted a new forecasting framework that uh, sort of looks a little bit more proactively at the regulations. So before advanced clean fleets, that, that regulation that we were just talking about, before that was even passed, we had built that into our forecasting as a scenario option. So we're really expanding the ability to say like, okay, this isn't locked in as a policy yet, but we know where the market's headed. We know where the regulatory landscape sort of is. We know what that's looking like and uh, we, we can get that planning in place. And so we, we now know that, you know, come 2035, we're going to need about 60,000 gigawatt hours of additional electric uh, power across the state uh, of additional electric electricity available there. And we also do um, sort of daily load shaping and a little bit of geographic distribution. So we have a good sense of, of how much electricity is necessary. We're working with the utilities and with other state agencies to, uh, you know, plan and, and get that ahead. We've got, you know, 12 years before 2035 rolls around. Uh, a lot of upgrades. Some upgrades will only take a you know a couple of years. Some upgrades will take seven to ten years. But we we know what we need now. We are working with uh, uh, all the relevant stakeholders to uh, uh, sort of ensure that that we can meet that need in the future. But it it is it's it's a big challenge because for a long time the state's been pretty energy efficient and electricity demand has kind of been stable. So we now need to grow. We need to do a lot. There's also a lot of electrification in other areas too. Uh, building electrification that adds to that, but um, uh, vehicles are are the primary primary source there. Great. I'd love to get uh, you know others' thoughts on uh, this uh, th this question. You know, uh, really just this question of, of whether it's realistic that the state can you know avoid brownouts as it ram ramps up. You know, some of these uh, energy energy grid issues that we've been seeing in in recent years. Um, uh, uh, Steve, would you like to take a shot at that one? <laughs> sure. Sure. I guess I'm less worried about the whole state going dark. But I'm really more concerned about, and, and while I agree 2035 is the 100% target, we're way, way, way in front of that. I mean, it's 50% in just four years. So if you think of like the Sacramento airport, if 50% of the rental cars are electric vehicles, how much power do we need at the Sacramento airport? Is it 10 megawatts, 20 megawatts. And it's one thing to plan for it, but it's, a, it's another thing to actually 
have the utilities deliver 10, 20, 30 megawatts of power to a site. That takes a long time. Is it four years, six years, eight years? I don't know, but but you know the the precision with which we're focused on the vehicle. So, for example, 2028, the requirement is 51% electric vehicles. It's not 50%. It's not 60%. It's 51%. So such precision. But when you go beyond that and you start looking at neighborhoods, like um, what portion of low-income neighborhoods have access to home charging? Is it 5%, 10%, 2%? Do we have any goal or target? Have we established a target? Is it? Have we said like by 2030, 25% of all low-income neighborhoods will have access to level two home charging? Do we have a target? Do we have a goal? And yet we have, for the vehicle side, we have exactly 68% have to be um, electric vehicles by 2030. So we're way in front of that 2035. And we have to take, and it's not I'm saying that it can be done. I'm saying that we have to act now. If we want to deliver that power to Sacramento Airport, we have to act now. Right. Uh, California has this sort of a twin goal of moving to uh, renewable energy while also going to zero emissions. Um, you know, Jacqueline, I just love your thoughts on uh, on on this sort of endeavor. Uh, you know, how do you see things from 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 your point of view? Well, it's a in every challenge, there's an opportunity, right? <laughs> uh, we're talking specifically about technology here. Um, what we have recognized um, and I'm speaking just on behalf of the fuel cell group at Toyota Research and Development, is um, we have a, a validated fuel cell. We have over 300 million miles on our fuel cell electric vehicles that are out in the market. Uh, we have uh, um, the capability to make a lot of power with, uh, with these fuel cells. Uh, so what we've done in certain instances, we've repackaged them. We have a one megawatt generator using our fuel cells um, that's out at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, demonstrating how we can create power from hydrogen created from renewables for a completely sustainable grid. Uh, we have a few other uh, systems where we've just taken the fuel cell out of the vehicle and made it mobile. Uh, we use that along with hydrogen trailers to charge our RAV4 primes or a BZ, right? So if you have, if you are in a remote area and you need to charge, you can use hydrogen and fuel cells to charge your electric vehicles. Um, or you can just refill the hydrogen vehicle, whatever works. Um, uh, but it, it, there's a huge opportunity here with all the renewables being made available um, a lot along with the Department of Energy putting a lot of money towards green hydrogen. We're going to have a lot more green hydrogen, a lot more sustainable hydrogen available, and then we can use the hydrogen to store the energy that's being created, you know, from wind or from solar. Later, use that either to create electric power to put back on the grid or um, directly to fill hydrogen vehicles. For so, from from our perspective. Um, it's really exciting to see all these new renewables coming online and and having hydrogen being available as an energy storage mechanism. So I get I guess uh, Jackie's posing a question or uh, Jack excuse me Jacqueline's posing posing a question. You know, is the debate settled between uh, you know EV or uh, other uh, zero emission uh, options? Uh, would anybody else like to to take that? Yeah, is there a debate? I mean, it's we're fighting carbon, right? So it's whatever powertrain gets us there to decarbonize as quickly as possible. We're running out of time, and I think it needs to be all technologies available. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. That that as well. I, I would note that the fuel cell electric vehicles um, don't comprise much of the 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 total number of sales. They represent about uh, less than one percent of the new vehicles sold. At the same, that's the, the light duty side of things. So the there there definitely there are some people that are interested in that. Uh, anecdotally, I've talked with some owners of fuel cell electric vehicles, and they say, "Oh, I like the idea. I can just go to a fuel station like I did normally." And actually, one person I know lives in an apartment and says, "Like it was going to be tricky for me to to get an electric car to charge, and so I got this fuel cell." But they talking about me? No, not not you. Uh, yeah, actually, one of our staff members, but uh, definitely, definitely a lot of people. One more anecdote, right, to add on to that. But um, 
Yeah, they, they definitely have a role to play, I think, in the medium and heavy duty space. Uh, the, the refueling needs there are, I think, uh, a little bit different. But uh, as long as consumers are maintain interest in them, uh, they, they can definitely play a large role there. Um, as far as the grid goes, one one thing I do want to say is is that I think I, I I'm not I don't want to say that this isn't a challenge. Certainly, it's something we need to to do um, uh, and and integrate well. But I think a lot of people think like, well, what happens if everybody tries to plug in their car at once? Um, and that would not be good, of course. But you know, if everybody's air conditioner kicked on at the exact same second. That would be a problem if everybody in LA tried to get on the 405 at 5:01 p.m. That would not be good for the 405. I mean, it's already <laughs> good for the 405 uh, with what's out there. But but we want to ensure that that when we look at at how the electricity system operates, is we've got millions of people doing all kinds of different needs throughout their days, charging at different times. And so what we want to look at is sort of that broad uh, shaping. Of of how do how do millions upon millions of different vehicles operate and plug in and not not plug in and uh, you know et cetera. So there are some geographical challenges definitely at places like airports at ports. Um, uh, so I don't want I don't want to say that this is a non-issue, but I do want us to to not kind of have the that kind of scary vision of just everybody plugging in at once and the whole system blows. Oh, absolutely. I, but I think the fact remains that, you know, that we we really need uh several factors to align, you know, for 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 us to to pull this off, you know. Yeah. Namely, drivers must avoid charging cars during as you mentioned during, you know, evening hours when there's uh going to be less solar energy available. Uh we're also looking this has been mentioned already, but you know, that we can certainly discuss it now. More than a million new charging stations uh we we need to get uh operating. And then we need uh, you know, offshore wind farms which are, you know, uh, not abundant in California today, to say the least, and must start sort of rapidly uh, cranking out a lot of energy. So, uh, yeah, let's uh, let's dive in uh, to to uh, to that Orville. I'm just wondering, you know, how do you see this uh, uh, this this transition kind of going forward? Well, um, <laughs> I th I think we have to be honest, right? It is going to be in bits and spurts. And we're going to have problems and there's going to be politics that's injected into it. The fact that you said brownouts is a very political term that was last year um, when it's related to EVs. And what I think, and I, I think you said it perfectly, there's opportunities here. There's not a mandate without funding, and that would be horrible. We have a whole of government approach for probably the first time ever that the federal government is acknowledging climate change and they are putting their money where this acknowledgement is. You know, the state's going to get almost $500 million in national EV infrastructure uh, funding for a network of DC fast chargers that would have um, kind of interspersed about every 50 miles, I think is the regulation for NEVI. And so we will have access to public charging, you know, to the question of, well, not everyone will have it in their house. Not everyone might need it in their house but we wanna make sure that where they're going, they will have it available when they need it and it will be working. That is also critical. Like we need to make sure all this technology works. You know, and you talked about uh, wind farms, yes. And I think Jacqueline talked about this too. We are looking at technology now that's being developed, that's advancing very quickly. That's gonna help the state meet its complementary goal of 100% renewable by large scale battery storage. How do we have ability with hydrogen to turn that into, uh, you know, energy, if it has to go vehicle to grid, you know, I think everyone's been talking about that, we have opportunities. So yes, not everyone is going to be charging at the same time. When I pick up my EV rental car at Hertz, I don't see 12 EV rental cars charging at the same time, they kind of stack it, which I think is great for a reservation system, they know when they could charge and kind of make that available to you. Uh, and airports are doing a great job in decarbonizing right now already. You know, I think LAX has ordered uh, a large number of Nikola Trey battery electric vehicles to do their on-site uh, goods movement. And so we are getting there. You know, CalStart has what we call a beachhead model that we worked on with the Air Resources Board, where it essentially has all the technology. And where is the technology developing to get to the whole ecosystem. And it started with things like forklifts and yard tractors where the range is minimal and the energy sources could be near zero or zero emission. 
And we are very close to the end of that right now. We have school buses, we have uh, drainage tractors, we have you know passenger light duty vehicles, we have transit buses. We are very close to getting to that last stage, which is you know the overnight day cab uh, semi truck tractors. And it was great to see we had a policy summit in February, and Tesla bought one of their Class A tractors to the capital and Nikola bought a class A fuel cell electric vehicle. And both of those went 500 miles. And we are quickly getting to this stage of our technological development where we are meeting the ranges that are necessary. And there are infrastructure advancements happening. You know, next year, hopefully we get approved for Arches, which is a gigantic US federal hydrogen hub dollars. And just thinking of what maybe that $1 billion to $2 billion designation would mean for private capital to come in. I've heard as much as $2 billion could leverage $15 billion in hydrogen infrastructure. So we have these moments, and I think, you know, memo to the capital out there, please don't get in the way of what good policy is because we're developing it. And I think the marketplace and uh, the partners that are on this are, are really doing a good job. So how do we get there? It's We just need funding and we need you know, the regulations not to inhibit the development that's going on. Steve, please go ahead. I see you nodding there. Okay. Yeah, there's there's so much here. Um, so a, a couple of things. First, I, 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 again, I think it's appropriate. There's been a laser focus on the vehicle um, and the, the requirements for the vehicle. And I, I think we're, we're kind of we're, we're kind of there. We're heading in the right direction. Um, I do think uh, Orville had mentioned like everybody does need to charge at home. They can use fast chargers and that's tends to be the answer. But, you know, again, I point to low income neighborhoods. I point to multifamily dwellings. If you're charging publicly, you're paying three, four times as much for electricity as if you're charging at home. So I would ask, is it reasonable that low income will pay triple four times as much? as affluent single family homeowners. So again, focus on, on that. Um, the NAVI, the, the, I forget the name of it, but it was the Inflation Infrastructure Investment, Investment and Jobs Act, IJA. It does provide um, DC fast charging along the corridors, but that's um, one four prong station every 50 miles. And those are kind of low power, it's 150 kW. So it would take 30, 45 minutes to charge a car at least. Um, so if you look like between here and LA, that would be 24 plugs. So imagine if there were just six gas stations between Sacramento and Los Angeles and each gas station only had four nozzles. And those nozzles took 45 minutes to fill your car. So, I mean, and I will add to that, that that was passed, what, two years ago. There's not, there hasn't been a shuffle full of dirt moved since that bill passed. There's no chargers out there now. Nobody has put in any chargers as a result of that bill. So, I mean, again, these things take time and we, we need to start taking actions today if we want to meet the requirements. And again, they're they're out there, and I, I don't think they're unachievable, but but it's going to take a lot more than just the vehicle. I think it's going to take all of us to hit these requirements. Right. Uh, you know, I, I kind of see it as a, a, an issue of, uh, you know, certainly government mandates or and government um, subsidies, as well as competition uh, among and between uh, car makers, uh, right, who... Uh, as I understand it, Tesla in particular has uh, focused a lot on, um, you know, building out its own infrastructure. Uh, you know, what uh, what can what what needs to be done uh, either by the industry or by uh, uh, you know a state or federal government to to get this in, uh, infrastructure going. Um, anybody here? <laughs> really quickly. Yes, uh, this is Steve's plan. There will be more than six chargers from Sacramento to LA with Nevi. I think, you know, part of the reason the shovels haven't hit the ground is everyone was required to submit a Nevi plan and it was approved by the Department of Transportation. And if you read it, you'll see that there are going to be a lot more chargers. So don't fret. And if you're online, please don't worry about that. Um, what can we do for the infrastructure? 
And luckily that there are lots of programs available at the CEC. The Clean Transportation Program is the one I think of the most. Uh, it's currently being reauthorized that provides $110 million every year for hydrogen and battery electric infrastructure, mostly targeted to medium heavy duty, but there is opportunities for light duty. And I think where we are looking at is with the Energy Commission, you know, they also have a communities in charge program that CalSTAR administers transparently that does provide funding for that level two chargers for that gap that Steve did talk about. And it's not just multi-unit dwellings, it's workplaces, it's universities and colleges, it's places of worship, it's tribal lands. You know, we really have these vast swaths of geography in California that don't have access to anything. But there are opportunities when you think of solar mixed with battery storage, then DC fast charging or mobile charging units and mobile power units that Jacqueline was talking about that could be hydrogen or battery electric that could fill in those gaps. And they don't necessarily have to be a strain on the grid. They could slow sip for energy over a 24-hour period and then use a DC fast charging to expel that energy in very quick ones. And then as we think through, you know, where we go, it is largely going to be dependent on how we provide incentives and where the kind of private sector can come in and be complementary. I think that is really an opportunity for California and every other state is that we have the funding and now we have really great grant programs that have matured and have staff on the side of it, like at the CEC or the CPUC or at the Air Resources Board. And there really is a race now in the private sector to figure out how California can be a model, you know, because we don't want to just be a model for the vehicle programs and the mandates. We want to be a model for how to set up the infrastructure to get this done correctly. Quentin, yeah. Yeah, just to add on the CEC, on, on the DCFC, yeah. Um, oh, sorry. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, there, there are we we track the the number of of chargers uh, at least that as best as we can. Some you know if someone installs one at their house, it's hard to know that. But um, uh, if when we're talking about the DC direct current fast chargers, uh, there are we are tracking them, and there are eight thousand in the state as of now. Um, so yeah, Nevi is one source, but the CDC has been funding uh, a lot of those, and there's been a lot of private investment as well. And Jacqueline, you yeah. were going to jump in. Yeah, I just wanted to add, um, in addition to you know all the discussions we've heard about, you know, be it six, eight thousand, whatever the amount of chargers there are, you know, fifty-six hydrogen stations. It doesn't mean anything if they're not available, if they're offline. And so I think uh, something that needs to be done is to ensure the reliability, the uptime of all of the infrastructure that we're installing, because it doesn't mean anything if you have a hydrogen station and you get there and you can't refill or you get to a charger, especially on your way in between Sacramento and LA and that charger's offline, right? And as we start to try to build out this environmental equity and make battery electric vehicles available to people that don't own homes, that can't charge at home, it's gonna become critical that those public chargers be online, right? Because that's the livelihood for these people that they be able to recharge their, their vehicles. And so I think right now, there's not as much focus on that because people can charge at home and are charging at home. But once that becomes the infrastructure that everyone is reliant on, that uptime is going to become critical. And so we need to make sure that our policies and our funding mechanisms or grants are requiring holding accountability on the part of the infrastructure providers to make sure that that equipment is online and available. Yeah, it's really uh, something to imagine a world where, uh, yeah, uh, you know, charging stations um, are ubiquitous as as gas stations. It's it's really, uh, you know, a stretch of the imagination at the moment, but that's where we need to go. Um, if uh, these mandates are going to be, uh, you know, met, are going to be a real thing. I'm uh, interested in talking about, uh, uh, you know, battery uh, technology a bit. Um uh, Quentin, uh, the car industry is grappling with supply chain constraints, competition for raw battery materials, and uh, a rush to start producing uh, cheaper U.S.-made batteries. Even uh, can you just uh, you know walk us through some of the the challenges uh, around batteries? Yeah, so I mean, as we all know, there's there's been a supply chain challenge over the last couple of years. Um, and also demand for lithium and other metals like cobalt um, have, have really skyrocketed and, and prices on the market have, have gone up uh, considerably there. Uh, at the same time, uh, 
you know, a lot of the 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 the, the vehicle manufacturers are, are really sort of planning ahead and sort of to just give you a rough sense, uh, staff and in, in at the CEC have been tracking this. And we find that there's if you look at like the battery manufacturing facilities that have been built and are working, and if you look at the ones that are in or that are under construction now and the ones that have been announced by companies up through 2030. Um, we are looking at, by 2030, we would have 1,000 gigawatt hours of uh, battery capacity production. Uh, to put that in perspective, uh, that's about enough for 10, at least 10, but probably more like 12 million EVs per year. Um, uh, that's, that's sure we're fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, so that's a that's a lot of production capacity. Uh, California, Californians buy about two million new vehicles per year. The United States as a whole uh, buys about twenty million or so a year. So by twenty thirty, we're looking at a battery production capacity that would be sufficient to meet that fifty percent goal that that uh, the the uh, Biden administration has, and certainly more than enough for California to meet its goals in terms of supply. So there's a lot out there. Um, we do expect uh, supply chains to ease. And also, as you build more and more factories, you get better and better at doing it and doing it at a lower cost. So we anticipate that uh, vehicle costs will come down over time and eventually be cheaper. It will be cheaper to purchase an electric vehicle than it will be to buy an internal combustion vehicle because electric vehicles are just much much simpler. Um, there, there are much fewer moving parts. So um, uh, the the fundamentals of it, I think, make it, make it to where this is going to be not necessarily the easiest thing out there. There's a lot to learn, but um, I think it's it's an eventuality. With those uh, fewer moving uh, parts, uh, I, I, the uh, the automobile um, union has raised some concern about uh, jobs uh, being lost with you know less to do. Um, Steve, I'm just wondering uh, what your thoughts are on um, you know uh, this challenge to the automobile industry, uh, you know, industry that has traditionally uh, provided uh, stable middle class jobs for a, a pretty significant and important uh, swath of the of the American uh, population. Um, that's a it's a it's a great question that I have a lot of thought to. That's certainly certainly true. There are fewer moving parts. I don't think there's any doubt that you were, it requires fewer people to to produce those vehicles and, and you know you you look around and it's not just the auto industry you know and i think that's also part of the you know how how do we approach this kind of in a big picture way you know you have i don't know what 100,000 gas stations across the country you just board them up and and go away do you replace them with but do you put chargers in those gas stations is that feasible is can the utilities get the power there um, and then there's also, you know, 100,000 people employed at, at, at engine factory, you know, plants to build gasoline engines at transmission. You don't need engines and transmissions for electric vehicles. So what do you do with those? Do you board them up or do you, you, you know, you retrain those people and, and move towards, you know, electric vehicles, electric motors and assembling electric vehicles. But, but yeah, I think it's a, it's a question, but, but again, we're, you know, the administration is looking at 50% electric by 2030, California's regs are 68% by 2030. So, I mean, it, it's happening very, very quickly. And so, you know, it, it is worth, worth a lot of thought. And, and then there's a lot of shortages, like who's gonna put in all these chargers? You know, do we have enough electricians to install chargers at home, install these DC fast chargers, uh, install chargers at the airport? What do we have like 10 chargers in the parking lot at, at the airport now? Is that enough? Who's going to put them in? So I think there's there's probably some some places that will shrink and some areas that will grow. Definitely, um, you know, uh, Jacqueline uh, Quentin mentioned, you know, how access to critical critical battery materials uh, pose uh, you know significant barriers to meeting California's EV requirements. Actually, that's my question. I'm not sure if you you, you said that. <laughs> Don't want to put words in your mouth, but you know, has the uh, you talked to us a little bit about that, and has the industry recovered from these supply chain disruptions, which we did mention um, that were faced during the pandemic? Uh, no, we're definitely still recovering from supply issues, um, and it's going to continue to to be a problem. Uh, you know, to your point, we are building a new battery plant right now to try to meet the the need, but I think this is one of the ways that um, 
you know, the, Toyota is addressing carbon and we want to decarbonize as quickly as possible. It's not, we want to build X amount of battery electric vehicles. We want to decarbonize, that's our focus. Um, and, you know, from great research from the state that led to the, you know, clean vehicles rule, um, clean cars rule, we know that people actually only need about 40 miles or 50 miles of driving a day, of zero emission driving a day. And we can meet that need with plug-in hybrids with a much smaller battery. And so, you know, if we have X amount of material to build a battery, we can build one BEV, right, with like 100 kilowatt hour battery. Um, that a person doesn't actually need for their daily driving, or we could build six plug-in hybrid vehicles and then decarbonize those, you know, those six vehicles, or we could build 90 hybrid vehicles or 90 fuel cell electric vehicles for that same amount of material. And so we think that policies should be focused on decarbonization and not on meeting X amount of battery electric vehicles, right? It needs to be about how do we decarbonize as quickly as possible? What's the right mix? And how, you know, how as automakers, our job is going to be create that technology and make it available for customers to buy a vehicle that suits their lifestyle to help them decarbonize as quickly as possible. So I think that plug-in hybrids, fuel cells shouldn't be off the table, especially when we're talking about things like mineral availability. I think Jackie touched upon something that because we're talking about technology, maybe a hidden secret. It really is urban planning. Like we have to get to a point where we're doing a couple of things, right? We're reducing the vehicle miles traveled. We're making it easier for people to have alternative forms of transportation, whether that is riding your bike instead of getting in your car and not having this dependence on every house having its own vehicle. And, you know, the technology, and I think the manufacturers are doing a great job playing their part in it. They're producing the technology that's available, but it doesn't solve for traffic. It doesn't solve our climate problems. If everyone just substitutes their current internal combustion gasoline vehicle for a zero emission vehicle. And so what we have to do and what I hope we all take away from this is there are solutions on infrastructure. There are solutions on technology on the vehicle side. The real solutions are made in city council chambers and at planning districts of how do we build around transportation in ways that reduce our dependence on one person getting in the car every day and driving that car to another destination charge and back to charge. And so I hope that we have, you know, I think the transit association is going to talk about transit next. So that's a viable part of this solution. You know, we're going to have to talk about bike lanes and ride share and, you know, autonomous vehicles. And so I think when we get into a lot of like, how do we meet these goals? Part of the meeting the goals is to just drive less and reduce that strain at some point on the grid. No, absolutely. Um, you know, I began with that uh, Etherton uh, example, but, you know, in, 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 and as Steve has kind of touched on, uh, you know, in stark contrast, uh, California uh, neighborhood zip codes with the largest percentages of Latino Black residents they have uh, extremely low proportions of electric cars. And so, yeah, I'd just like to return to this issue of equity. How can we uh, really start building that into, um, you know, availability of zero emission vehicles, our infrastructure, all of that? would love to hear uh, some of your thoughts on that. And Steve, since you've, you've, you've brought this up a couple of times, uh, uh, let's start with, uh, with you. Um, I, I guess the first thing is to understand what we have. The infrastructure in these neighborhoods will be critical um, and residential infrastructure. I mean, if you have an electric vehicle and you have a house, it's easy. You come home, you plug in, and in the morning it's full. If you have to go somewhere and spend, you know, four hours at the Rayleigh's charging your car, well, that's that's not convenient. That's not a solution. So um, so the first thing I think is just inventorying and knowing exactly, you know, what portion of low-income residents have access to level two home charging. And I say level two because, you know, you can trickle charge, but but then you're not getting the advantage of these time of use rates that all of the utilities offer. So you're not getting the lowest rates. Can you charge between midnight and 6 a.m.? So first get an inventory of how, what portion of the, the these communities have access to charging. And then the second is to set targets 
for these communities? Is it 25% of all these communities will have access to level two home charging by 2030? Is, is that reasonable given that we, we will have 68% of new vehicles at that point will have will be electric. Um, and, and so I, I just think, you know, first determining what we have and then setting the appropriate goals and targets and, and possibly requirements would seem like the, the first step. And I'll just add that, you know, in these communities, whether you're buying a, a, a new car or a used electric vehicle, and there are in the Inflation Reduction Act, there's very very good incentives for used electric vehicles, you still need the infrastructure. So I think focusing on that would be extremely helpful. And, and Orville, I'd love your response. And then after that, I think we might turn to some audience questions. But yeah, I mean, what do you think about this notion of, of, of targets? And are there other uh, legislative approaches uh, to be considered when we're, we're talking about uh, uh, equity in the uh, zero emission uh, challenge? Yeah, I don't know if we can talk about equity without thinking about targets for funding and investments. And, you know, most of the disadvantaged communities that we work with and have discussions with, it isn't the light duty vehicles that are causing a public health crisis. They're located on areas that are high goods movements, right? Like they are around ports, they're around distribution centers. They have had you know, diesel engines like pumping smog into their neighborhoods for generations. And so what I think the state is trying to do first when it comes to equity is how do you get those commercial vehicles to decarbonize? And how do you make sure that if they're domiciled in some of these areas, right? I'm thinking around ports, Los Angeles, Long Beach, or the Inland Empire, the Central Valley, where you have trucks moving in and out every day. How do you make sure that the air that is being like inhaled is not full of emissions from some of these vehicles? And also the ag sector, right? As we think through zero emission ag technology that's rapidly developing. So I think where the state is going in the policy side is really thinking through those bigger vehicles first, off-road vehicles first, and where the air is worse is kind of centrally located around goods movement. And then when you get into that light duty vehicles, clean cars for all, the clean vehicle reimbursement program, um, how do we make sure that they are getting into a cleaner vehicle? It doesn't necessarily have to be jumping from a, you know, 1990 Ford F-150 to a 2023 Tesla as Jacqueline said, how can we get them maybe into a plug-in hybrid EV so that they have that range anxiety, but they're also driving uh, a much cleaner vehicle for their community. So I think where the state is going is thinking through what are the easiest ways to address the most drastic public health problems, especially the communities that need it the most. And then how can we help some of those super user drivers, right, that are driving from the Tracy's, the Mantecas to San Francisco? How do we incentivize them to provide them with opportunities to top off or when they get to their workplace to have some kind of subsidized charging uh, opportunities? And then with the Communities in Charge program, how do we make sure that when they do come home, whether it's to a multifamily unit like building or an area where they live, that they have some subsidized funding for a charger available. So I think the state's doing really good things. Uh, there are a lot of sticks happening with mandates, uh, but I think there are a lot of carrots happening with incentive programs and you know deadlines for action. So we have uh, 2035 coming up that I think it's gonna be a fun time. A lot of work to do, absolutely. Of course. So uh, yeah, environmental equity is also key to us. How do we make the vehicles available? We have a great, uh, used Toyota certified used vehicle program for the Mirai that comes with a $15,000 fuel card. So we like to joke that it's actually the most affordable car that we offer right now is our first generation Toyota Mirai. Um, we have programs uh, like called Valley Can where we have replaced vehicles for low-income customers uh, that are centered around what's a Harris Ranch um, and given them first generation Mirai so that they can now um, fill at that hydrogen fueling station and replace their previous, you know, vehicle with a, with a Mirai. Um, to your point, back in 2017, we realized that, again, we have this great technology in the fuel cell that we've spent over 30 years now developing. Um, 
to put two of those fuel cells into a class eight semi and demonstrate that we could pull 80,000 pounds. And so we kind of work in like the Skunk Works R&D shop in Los Angeles. We did it. Um, our management was like, what are you guys doing? We don't do trucks. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. Um, but 16,000 diesel semis come in and out of the ports of LA every single day. And the communities around them have higher rates of asthma, higher rates of cancer. And, you know, I sit behind this, these trucks, these diesel trucks and, and get kind of angry, right? Like why, why is this still a thing when we have the technology to solve this? So we built the first one that was called alpha. Then we built beta. Then we built 10 more with funding from the state. Um, we had a very successful program there um, with these trucks actually moving goods around the ports. And uh, now we just recently announced that PACCAR, we're going into commercialization with PACCAR um, for Kenworth and Peterbilt trucks. To your point, to get those diesel vehicles off the road and to really start to impact those low income communities as far as air quality and, and health. Um, but yeah, the next step is how do we get them driving zero emission vehicles as well. But I think the impact needs to go beyond just the light duty vehicles to your point it needs to include every uh, Indeed, the technology we, can, we need to yeah expand it. We can move uh, that way. Yeah. So do we have any uh, questions from the audience or I from we, the I think we've got one over here. Good. Uh, Mark Neckadam with Western States Petroleum Association. I'm very happy to hear that there's not a zero sum game discussion going between the fuel cell and EV. I don't think I'm hearing that. Um, can you speak to the hydrogen supply chain? And what do you expect that to do? We're talking about infrastructure. I'll take hands or, yeah. Oh, well, uh, just as far as hydrogen as a fuel, you mean? <clears throat> uh, yeah, so uh, we we know that eventually we're going to need to have 100% uh, renewable hydrogen associated with, with fuel cell EVs. That's going to require most likely electrolysis. There might be some biological sources as well. Um, uh, definitely uh, something that that we need to be thinking about and planning for, especially because electrolysis would require electricity. And so that's something that we're going to be looking at in our forecasting work in the future. You guys know hydrogen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you use most of the hydrogen for petroleum. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's pipelines in in Texas, a lot of a lot of hydrogen available down there. To your point, it's not green right now, but it can be. And uh, through a lot of the funding that's being made avail available at the federal level, we're, we are going to see that transition to green hydrogen. And the cost is going to come down significantly. Um, a lot of energy companies are starting to investigate hydrogen. A lot of uh, public utilities are starting to investigate hydrogen. It's getting more attention than I have ever seen in my 20 years in this industry. Um, so yeah, so the supply, you know, right right now we have a good amount of supply. Um, Air Liquide just built their facility in Nevada that we're using for a lot of the stations here. California has already mandated that hydrogen that's used for the fuel cell vehicles has to be at least 33% renewable. At the stations I fill at, it's 100% renewable. Um, but yeah, I think, I, mean, I hope we get arches. If we get arches, we're going to see a, a lot more hydrogen supply coming through and green hydrogen at that. So it's, uh, again, first time I've seen this amount of federal investment going into it. And I think it's going to be uh, uh, very beneficial. Probably have time for one more question. We've got one right here. Brian Joseph, Capital Weekly. Uh, this is a question for everyone on the panel, but I, I wanted to focus on something Mr. Douglas had, had uh, uh, mentioned. Uh, you talked about, uh, you know, are there going to be enough electricians to to install all the infrastructure that we've been talking about in this panel? California Forward recently produced a report saying that, in fact, California doesn't have the workforce necessary to uh, install all of the infrastructure that we're talking about here. I'm wondering what you on the panel think are the challenges for addressing California's infrastructure workforce and, and how we can solve those. Great question. I brought up the question. <laughs> I was hoping some of my fellow panel members could help answer it. Um, it it's, a, it's a great question. I, I don't have the answer. That's not, you know, I'm focused on the vehicle and the regulations around the vehicle. But, but I think it is a broad question. And, and it comes up in other states as well as California that I work in, where it's like, okay, how do we get this workforce? How do we get them trained? How do we get them in place? Because, again, we just don't have... A lot of time. So acting now, getting those, get, getting those people trained, identifying them, and, and these are pretty solid jobs as well. So, you know, I, I, sorry, I don't have the answer. Yeah. I think part of the answer is not just exclusive to zero emission vehicles. If you look at all the trades, so I used to work for the California Alliance for Jobs that had laborers, operating engineers, 
carpenters. You know, I see people here that represent the IBW. I think for generations, education has kind of filtered people into four-year degrees being a must. And we are starting to see that whole recalculation of it, especially starting at grade school levels and introducing STEM and STEAM and all of these programs and saying that these trades jobs are viable opportunities to make a great living, provide you know great middle-class income and benefits and lifetime jobs that are often generational. And so I think the state is looking at that as how to revitalize community colleges, how to start thinking through where the trades can be reintroduced into that. And, you know, this, as, as Steve talked about, is a real opportunity for reshuffling. And zero emission vehicle industry and the economy shouldn't leave anyone behind. And this is opportunities for those that are coming out of incarceration. These are opportunities for those that, you know, are finding new job skills. And it really is going to be an opportunity for California. I know um, Quentin, the CEC just provided 25 million for battery manufacturing. So the state is really thinking through what every dollar that goes into zero emission vehicles can do to have that secondary and tertiary like economic effects on the industry. And I, I hope we do because we need it. We have to get to that level of a skilled and trained workforce, but it really is a larger conversation about education and where we kind of see the, the role of the trades. And that's an excellent place for us to uh, end. So thank you all very much for this incredible discussion, for kicking us off this morning. And thank you to Capital Weekly. Thanks very much. And we will be uh, up with our next panel in 15 minutes. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.